Hey, as I've gotten to know our church family here, one of the things I'll admit I'm a little afraid to do is show up to any of your kids' sports tournaments and games. I'm just not sure I'm ready for that side of who you guys are. You know, you read stories of parents uh, and umpires who are quitting and coaches who are getting threatened over the things going on in the field or the fact that their kid isn't getting playing time, right? And I... Who of you would identify as perhaps an embarrassing parent at a, a tournament time? Uh, you'll self-identify that? It was fun at our outdoor service last weekend, wasn't it? Oh, my goodness. So great to be together in one place, one service, one church family in our community. I love that. And seeing everybody roll out with their lawn chairs and their tents, you could tell the people who were good at showing up at their kids' tournaments and, you know, avoiding sun, sunburn and skin cancer along the way. You know, I grew up playing some high school sports totally as an amateur, totally for the fun of it and not for the, the being good of at it. But I was competitive, and, and so was my brother. We kind of played the same sports together. Uh, it was helpful to me that I was three years older than him. I always felt better than I really was. And then I joined my actual teams, right, in high school, and I realized, oh, I'm actually not good at all. And one of the things that both of us played in growing up in our family was tennis. We played tennis in high school. I was good enough to make the, the varsity doubles team, and that's kind of where I hung out. So if anybody wants to get together and play some tennis sometime, we can try to make that happen. I'm very bad, so you'll feel very good or welcomed. Uh, but one of the things that was interesting about that season of my life was seeing who my parents were at those sport tournaments. You know, some parents are out there, they're there to yell and encourage and cheer on their kids. Some parents are there to, uh, you know, uh, become the worst version of themselves. I don't know what motivates them as they arrive to these things. But, you know, my parents, I was thankful for their consistency and, and who they were. They really modeled, I think, how to have the right perspective of things. And that's tricky in tennis because there's rules for cheering for the sport of tennis, right? If you've ever watched actual tennis on TV, you'll know. There's times when you're allowed to cheer for points, and there's times where points are scored that you're not allowed to cheer. It's a very confusing kind of spectator environment. And my mom decided to embrace that by, by not really making a whole racket. I never really heard my mom cheering. She, she didn't want to cheer at the wrong time, so she mostly kept to herself. Except when she noticed her boys beginning to act in a manner unbecoming of perhaps the Hickson name, or our faith in the Lord. And she had a special way of doing that. You see, the competitive nature in the Hickson family would come out at times. You'd be very surprised to find that out, I know. And, and as those moments happen, between my brother and myself, there's this thing that my mom would consistently say from the sidelines, across the fence, into the tennis court, I'm going to be honest, it didn't always help her purposes. But I can still see her looking a little disappointed, saying across the tennis court in a controlled voice that a man without self-control is like a city broken into and without walls. I'm blessed by the parents I had. And I know that better now than I did then. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and without walls. She would quote from the book of Proverbs when she sensed that me or my brother were, were losing our control of ourselves. 
And she referenced this proverb that, that really kind of does a great job of pointing out that like self-control, a city that's broken into is controlled by somebody else. When we don't have self-control, we're controlled by somebody else. And like a city that's broken into and controlled by others and left without its walls, it's susceptible to whoever or whatever is going to come along next, right? A city broken into without walls is controlled by someone else and susceptible to whoever or whatever is going to come next. And when we don't have self-control, we're the same. We're controlled by whatever this external stimulus is that has a hold of our emotions or our heart. The opponent on the tennis court, our inability to execute the way we want to, or the family member or brother or sister who took your thing, who wore your favorite outfit without your permission. When we lack self-control, we are controlled by someone else and left susceptible to whatever might come along next. And this summer, we are in 2 Peter chapter 1. We're seeing that God has called us not just to faith, but to a growing faith. And we're to be growing up, bearing fruit out of our knowledge of life in Jesus. And I want to take a moment right at the beginning here to read from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and following. It says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, it says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we opened up this passage last weekend, we acknowledge that God has given us everything we need to work hard to continue to grow in our relationship with Jesus. He's called us to a faith, and he's filled us with the Spirit. He's giving us his word, filled with his promises, and then our faith, layered with love, is to grow in these qualities. Specifically, out of this whole list that we're going to be looking at this summer, this morning, we're going to camp out on self-control. Aren't you so glad you came today? We're going to be seeing the rest of these, these qualities throughout the month of July, and I'm looking forward to them, but today we're going to camp out on the idea of self-control, because self-control is given as a fruit of the Spirit and really called into the life of a believer throughout the New Testament. So today we're going to do a bit of a word study, a bit of a topical study on this idea of self-control. And we're going to be kind of flipping all through the New Testament and even the Old Testament to see the way God's word calls us to self-control. And in Titus 2, for instance, it says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Self-controlled. That's what God's grace works out in us. We're repenting of ungodliness and instead putting on self-control. 2 Timothy 1 says this, God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. It's like in the top three things that Timothy, uh, Paul is writing, Timothy says God gave us. He gave us power through the Holy Spirit. He gave us the ability to love just like he's loved us. And he gave us the lesser known of the triplets, <laughs> self-control. In 1 Peter, Peter opens his first letter to these Believers throughout Asia Minor at the time by saying the end of all things is at hand. It's all coming to a close. This is the way the rest of this age needs to be lived out. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. It's clear throughout Scripture God has called us to put on self-control. And the reality is, as biblical and as spirit-given as the quality of self-control is, I don't really have to spend much more time, I don't think, encouraging our church family to understand that self-control is a good, worthwhile thing. You don't have to know God to want the person you're married to or the parent who's raising you or the coworkers you're working with to be people who are self-controlled, right? We, when we think about the people who we respect most in life, the people who inspired us, the people we wanted to be scheduled on our next shift with, those people often are people who are self-controlled. They're able to regulate themselves. They're not prone to outbursts. They're able to do the right thing consistently, even if it feels like the thing they don't want to do. And God has called us to a life of self-control. I want to give a definition for our church family today to work with and to go off of as we get into this concept. I would say that self-control is this. Self-control is the spirit-enabled, scripture-directed ability to do what is right, despite your desires. It's the spirit-enabled, scripture-directed, so it's made possible by the Holy Spirit, who's a work and alive in a believer. It's directed and controlled by what scripture instructs us to think and to say and to do and to believe ability to do what is right despite your desires that is self-control and if that's self-control let me ask a question how many of uh, how many of us are doing it right even worse how many of us are growing in self-control isn't that like typical Cultural mindset that once I turn 18, it's wonderful. Why? Because now I get to do what I want, right? I'm the boss of me now. And, and sometimes self-employment is seen as a dream because then I get to work the way I want to work. I think we struggle with the idea of being growing, of growing in self-control. Even though Second Peter seems to think, Believers should be. Think about your track record lately when it comes to self-control. When you're shopping or spending. And Amazon says, people who buy this also buy. Oh, do they? 
Well, I certainly don't want to be unlike people. <laughs> I think I need one of those. What about food and drinking? Are we growing in self-control when it comes to food and drinking? Am I ruining our 4th of July plans today? Maybe if they're wrong. I don't know. Are we growing in self-control when it comes to anger? Communication? Are we growing in self-control in areas that we're prone to laziness or apathy? Do the people in your life get the distinct sense that as each season goes by, every season, every year, every new stage for you, you're more like God in the way you live with restraint to your own desires in order to do what is right. Man, if you're like me, and if I'm like you, we struggle with self-control. And we're in good company in some ways because the Apostle Paul struggled with self-control. In fact, he said it this way. You may remember this well. In Romans 7, he said, For I do not understand my own actions. It's like the life verse of so many of us. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Paul wasn't a, a cringy, grungy indie band trying to figure out what was going on in his emotions. He was a human who admits, like all humans, we are prone to not grow in the area of self-control. Most of the time, though, I think we could rephrase this thought in order to help us think clearly about it. Because self-control, we, we have all sorts of ideas about what this is. And, you know, you might be tempted to call it self-leadership because you're investing in the future you instead of, uh, you know, trying to pay off a past version of you. Or, you know, you might just think self-control and instantly have feelings of, like, the way your teacher made you sit still when you wanted to be scatterbrained. And you just don't like the concept. And maybe let, let's play with the concept some. It might be that we could say the problem isn't that we lack to control ourselves. Because in fact, I think you and I are very self-controlled. I think you are incredibly self-controlled. And I know I am very self-controlled. The problem is we just aren't very God-glorifying. Right? Innately, on our own, we're very self-controlled. We're just not very God-glorifying. What I mean by that is, we're self-controlled. I'm, I'm distorting the literal meaning to mean this. We're controlled by our own selves, our own desires. We do what we want. We make self what controls us, right? I've heard this said before. People are always going to do what? What they want to do, right? Like we so often left on our own to our own devices without the supernatural power of God at work, in our hearts, we do what we most want to do. We are very self-controlled. We just aren't very God-glorifying. What ourselves want isn't the right thing to do. But being controlled by ourselves is a trap. Being controlled by ourselves is a trap. We see in the book of Ecclesiastes a, a guy, King Solomon likely, who who had every opportunity to be controlled by himself. He had the resources, he had the time, he had the power to do whatever he wanted to do, and he dedicated a whole season of his life to doing exactly that. He spent some time, you can read it in Ecclesiastes 2, where he, he 
went after his own heart's desires. He allowed his self to be what controlled and dictated everything he did. Does that sound like the way you would like to spend your summer? Man, the pool and a book, some snacks, your kids at grandma's, until August. I could get behind that life, right? And this man had the chance to do that. In fact, he wasn't only lazy about it. He, he had a good time, and, and he did what he wanted to do, and he was with whoever he wanted to be with. But he also went and did good things because he had an ego and ambition too, and many of you can relate to that. He went and he, he engineered incredible feats of architecture. He had huge industry-wide, nation-leveled uh, work projects, and they built huge infrastructure ambitions, and they went after really cutting edge of everything they had to do. And at the end of this season, really there's probably likely most of his life, this man reflects on his attempt to live controlled by himself. And he says this in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 9, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Sounds like the experiment worked. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. So he's about to decide, was it worth it? Living controlled by myself, doing whatever I want to do, whatever brought me pleasure. Does living for yourself work or is self-control, being controlled by yourself then, a trap? And behold, he says, all was vanity. All was vanity and a striving after the wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This guy lived for and controlled by himself and he says in the end it was meaningless. So the control trap, allowing yourself to control you, doesn't work in the end. The other problem with the control trap, allowing self to control you, is that our desires, the things that we allow to control us, so often are wrong desires. They're sinful desires. Even when we don't think they are, apart from the Holy Spirit at work in and through our lives, Jeremiah has this to say as a prophet speaking to a nation who he was exposing the sin in their hearts, he said, the heart, the thing that drives you, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? In that sense, the self that controls you desires the wrong things. When you look at your life, what we can walk away with all of this is this. This control trap that doesn't work in the end and is motivated by wrong desires, this is the end of it. When you look at your life, most of the time, apart from God in your life, you've done exactly what mattered to you most. We're walking through this with, with our kids. You do exactly what matters to you most. We're seeing this behavior, right, at, at four and five and six years old where where you're talking to your kids and you're like, why did you do that? Why did you bite your sibling? Why did you take that toy? Or why, why did you directly disobey me? And they're like, I didn't mean to. And it's like, you did exactly what you wanted to do. Right? Like, you may regret it now. Especially we might regret the consequences of our actions now. 
We may regret that we didn't work hard or that we were cheating on them or, or that we haven't communicated to them or that we've been, you know, pushing them away. We, we may regret consequences, but ultimately what we do most of the time is exactly what mattered to us most. Our lives demonstrate what we value. The outcome of our lives, controlled by ourselves, demonstrates what we value. Do we value our appetites, things we're wanting, our lusts, our own glory? Our lives demonstrate what we value. The real question then becomes, what's the right thing to value? And how do we allow that value to control us instead of ourselves? What's the right thing to value, and then how do we allow that thing to control us instead of this deceitful, ineffective thing called self that tends to control everything we do? The gospel gives us a way out. In fact, Paul, in the middle of finding his control trap so frustrating, praises the solution. He says in Romans 7, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. There's something there I want to value. But I see in my members, in my body, in my actions, in my life, another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? How can I get out of this self-control trap where I dictate what I most want in spite of myself. And he says, thanks be to God through, here's the way out, here's the solution, through Jesus Christ our Lord. In the middle of being frustrated by the way we ruin our lives, Paul says, the way through this, the thing I'm thankful for in spite of myself, is Jesus Christ. He is the way. He's the way to life, He's the way to restoration to God the Father, and he's the way that we can experience freedom and release from living controlled by ourselves. Jesus can be your deliverer from slavery to being controlled by your sinful desire, and then he does, once he's done that, become your way to do what is right, despite your own lingering sinful desires. And that brings us all the way full circle back to 2 Peter chapter 1. Where Peter had said his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. His power is giving us what we need in order to live a life that's fueled by actual self-control instead of being controlled by our own selves. And he says this, it's through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. At the end of the day, I think we could say that self-control is all about giving control back to God. Self-control, in, in the little moments and in the big moments alike, it's really all about giving control back to God. To stop allowing ourselves to control our lives and instead give that control back to God. The way to experience life and godliness, the way God has granted us the ability to do, Peter says, is through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his very precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers in the divine nature. Think 
And looking at this, what we see is to be self-controlled, we need to give away control to God. And the first way to do that is to know Jesus as your Savior and Lord. To know Jesus as your Savior and Lord. We get there through the knowledge, Peter says, of him who called us. Knowing the one who called us. Because God chooses people to be his sons and daughters and then calls them by the work of the Spirit, awakening faith in their hearts so that they can respond to God in repentance to know him, to believe in him as their rescuer and redeemer and leader. When we know Jesus as our Savior and Lord, that's the first step to being able to be controlled by God instead of ourselves. Because Scripture teaches us that before God rescues us, we are dead in our sins. We are slaves to who we used to be. We will always be controlled by desires that don't work and are wrong. And if you're feeling frustrated by a life that you feel like isn't working out and you're filled with regrets about all the things that you keep doing, that sabotages things that you feel like you ought to ultimately want It might be that God is beginning to awaken you to a reality that you're controlled by yourself and you don't want to be. You'll always be controlled by a dead thing until you know the living God. So to be self-controlled, we need to give away control by knowing Jesus as our Savior and Lord. And then next, we need to allow the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's word to direct our lives. His great and precious promises. God's power through the Spirit giving us the power we need. We need to allow the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's word to direct our lives. Church family, that's why we talk to God. That's why we encourage a personal life that's robustly in communication with him by looking at his word, talking to him. That's why we encourage and want to be in communities of people who in a circle sitting around living room tables or in a car or on the phone, you're able to say in kind of accountability relationships to others, I need to know what God's will for this is, not what my will for this is. Can you help me discern that? Can you call that out in me when you see it in the wrong way? Would you point out the ways in my life that aren't looking like you? To live by self-control, we need to give God control. And really, also, we need to make sure we're not doing it by ourselves. To have self-control, we need to give control to God and not do it by ourselves. And then spirit-enabled, directed by Scripture, despite our desires at times, God gives us everything we need to do what is right, to be self-controlled, to be God-controlled. So that's the sermon. It's easy, right? Something that only God could do. And to help us get there, I want to suggest humbly as a starting point, maybe three things we could do to add self-control to our life of faith. Three things we could do to add self-control to your life of faith if you're a believer. If you're here and you're not sure that you're in a relationship with God, you're not sure what you believe about him yet, if you're in here and you haven't taken that step of faith to know him, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're hearing this. And there's a lot of great tips on how to live a better, more self-controlled, more orderly life, and you'd be wise to follow them. But I want to be honest with you, you're never going to know life when you don't know God. 
I encourage you to take a step. Maybe we could pray with you after service today and, and help discern what God is moving in your heart and life so that you may know him. But the first thing you might do once you know God to add self-control to your life of faith is this. Be faithful with your current opportunity. Be faithful with your current opportunity. Because we need to be building self-control, muscles as it were, in all areas of life. And small things maybe even first before bigger things. You know, it's interesting, clinical psychology has determined that self-control is is an exhaustible resource. And you don't need clinical psychology to tell you that. You know it's true. If you've had to control yourself for any one thing, usually right after you're done and removed from that situation, you're much more likely to give in to something else. Right? And when we're tired, we're much more likely to give in to uh, something that we might be able to not give in to at another time. That's why, while it's wise to, to not let the sun go down on your anger with someone, it's also wise to go to bed before you get angry with someone, right? Can we schedule this conversation tomorrow morning? So it's interesting. The more we use self-control, the less we have of it on the short term. You almost need a self-control break day in order to be ready for the next self-controlled moment. But, but they've also determined that the more and more and more you take those small steps of showing self-control in small areas, the more and more and more strength you have to show self-control in bigger and bigger areas. It's just like exercise. The more we're able to show self-control by the power of the Spirit, God gives us a natural ability to be able to show self-control and self-restraint in bigger ways down the road. That's why I think parents and kids in here today, it's wise to learn and start showing self-control now and expecting it from each other in small areas about that portion size for the number of cookies you can have once you finish all of your vegetables, right? That's a good starting point because when you're an adult, if you don't start there, you have a hard time learning it. There was a coach at my school who leveraged this principle with his basketball team. I was glad I was not on his basketball team. He's one of those coaches that terrifies you, right? His name was Coach Shaw, and he, I think Indiana once had a coach kind of like that um, until he threw on too many chairs. And, you know, this coach had a rule with his players. We had this, like many college campuses, a, a central quad, right? You had this big rectangular sidewalk and then a big grassy space in the middle. And what's great about this quad was they didn't design it well at all because the main access to the quad was over in this corner down like the bottom right, and the main building doors that you would be getting to were on the top left. So you had to choose to make a hard 90-degree right angle or just cut diagonally right across the grass. And we're all well-behaved, respectable, God-loving students at this Christian school, so naturally we cut right across the grass. Shortest walk. It just makes sense. That's what you do. But not the basketball team. Coach Shao had a rule. Take shortcuts in the quad, you'll take shortcuts in your marriage. No basketball players were allowed to cut across the grass. And that's not a hard and fast rule. I can't guarantee that if, if you lack self-control in one area, that means you'll lack self-control in another. But there's a principle there that's true. Be faithful with your current opportunity 
show self-control in the area that God's working on your heart right now by the power of the Spirit. God sets the stage and groundwork for greater areas of responsibility and opportunity in the future. And then make a decision before you need to make a decision. To add self-control to your life of faith, make a decision before you need to make a decision. Informed by Scripture, saturated in prayer, plan what's right ahead of time in the areas that you know you're going to need to show self-control down the road. Maybe that's access to the Internet. Maybe that's how you're going to use your finances. It's wise to make a decision before you need to make a decision. To set a rule, a plan, get accountability around it, set up parameters that make it easy to not even have a choice in the matter. We already chose. We've already set up. I already have the list of the things I'm going to buy, or I already know, and we've already decided this is our rule. Make a decision before you need to make a decision, because if you get to the point of making a decision and you haven't decided ahead of time, now you have to leverage self-control. And you might, by the power of the Spirit, be able to do it, but it's wise to make a decision ahead of time. And then finally, allow what you value most to not only overcome what you want now, but allow what you value most to become what you want now. The glory of God, a love for others, shepherding the ones God has called you to care for. Allow what you value most to become what you want now. By the power of the Holy Spirit, by allowing God's word to saturate our minds and renew the way we think, that can happen. So that we could value and live life as Paul did when he said, I invite the team that's leading us in worship to come to the stage as I read this. Paul said, and we can have this attitude, I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what lies ahead, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Church family, I invite us to grow in self-control the way Scripture invites us to grow in self-control. Knowing it's a fruit of God's work in your life. And knowing God's called us to it. Let's together, church, let's give control back to God. Instead of trying to keep it here. Let's live self-controlled by giving control back to God.